0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Chronicles chapter 1. We will begin reading in verse 8. As I age, my amazement over the scripture only grows. There is a, a saying that certainly has substance that, Familiarity tends to breed contempt. We tend to think less and less of a thing or a person the longer we are with them. But day by day, I am more amazed by the scriptures, what they are, what they contain, and that God would condescend to give them to me 1 Chronicles chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. The sons of Ham, Cush and Mitzrayim, Put and Canaan. And the sons of Cush, Seba and Havilah, Sabta and Ra'amah and Sabteka. And the sons of Ra'amah, Sheba and Dedan. And Cush begat Nimrod, he began to be mighty upon the earth. And Mithraim begat Ludim, and Anamim, and Lehabim, and Naphtuhim, and the Pathrusim and Casluhim, of whom came the Philistines, and Kaphtarim. And Canaan begat Zidon, his firstborn, and Heth, the Jebusite also, and the Amorite, and the Girgashite, and the Hivite, and the Archite, and the Sinite, and the Arvidite, and the Zemurite, and the Hamathite. Experiences that we have when we are young certainly can leave a lasting impression. I still remember quite vividly Sitting in a in a high school classroom, although I was raised by a christian mother i I cannot say that I was a Christian at the time, but I would have affirmed that the Bible is uh, the Word of God, and according to my abilities, I would have tried to defend that uh, strangely enough, while at the same time not laying hold of Christ by faith and not obeying the scripture's precepts. But nevertheless, there I was, and we were getting into the study of the epic of Gilgamesh. As part of that extraordinary narrative, the Babylonian hero Gilgamesh goes in search of the Noah. Figure, the one who has the secret of eternal life, the one that had survived the flood. And I do remember my my teacher observing and reflecting upon the biblical account of Noah and um, portraying it as but another bit of mythology and perhaps inferior. To the Gilgamesh, Gilgamesh mythology, he just simply observed that all of those ancient uh, civilizations had a, a flood narrative, and the biblical account was simply derivative of that—a ripoff. And I was, I was disturbed. Uh, especially because I wasn't quite sure how to answer. I didn't believe him, mind you, but I wasn't sure what could be said about it either. Well, fast forward a uh, a number of years, and I discovered the idea of Christian Hemerism. There did come a time in the life of the pagans when they began to ask questions about where their ancient myths had come from. And there were a variety of answers. Perhaps they um, came from, oh, enterprising men, rulers and priests who wanted to have control and supremacy over people. So they were invented. Or perhaps they were invented just by the peoples themselves as capturing social norms and passing them on to future generations. Uh, Euhemerus was a 2nd century BC Greek thinker. And his idea was that, uh, was that the ancient myths were grounded in real history. Now, when the uh, Christian religion began to spread through the Greco-Roman Empire, um, people who had been pagans and who um, were thinkers that had already embraced euhemerism immediately produced a a form of christian eu- euhemerism the idea being that the bible the bible history was the was the real history and that the Pagan myths were derivative from that. If I were to give you the very marrow of the argument, it would be something like this. If the extraordinary events surrounding Noah and his family and the flood happened, and they did, and then you have the confusion of tongues at Babel coupled with fallen man's native tendency to idolatry then you find exactly what you would expect to find the story is preserved but it is tainted substantially and linguistically and you're also not surprised that it has a these stories have um, close to a worldwide spread uh, and are detectable in almost all uh, cultures because all of the cultures of the earth ultimately came from one family so so the the flood and babel give what what you might call fundamental mythology to um to the world so these events really happened but then then babel happened uh so basically you have uh, in the mythologies of the world the old and new world dynamic that there was a a world before the flood and uh, a world after you had the titans the gods of the old world and the olympians of the new uh, Saturn is certainly among the the principal Titans, and this would be uh, the Noah figure um, of the of the twelve great Olympians. Three were uh, principal and immediate descendants from uh, Saturn, even as Noah had his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And really, to the three, the dominion of all things was uh, committed. So you had um, uh, Jupiter or Zeus, interestingly enough. Uh, Ham means heat or fervor as does uh, as does Zeus. And he is given um, dominion over the skies. You might think about Ham's settlement in north and eastern. Africa and the plains and the, and the open skies, as it were. You had uh, Japheth, who was given the coastlands or the seas, as was Poseidon or uh, Neptune. So he used uh, the islands of the Mediterranean and the European uh, side of it. And then finally, uh, you have uh, Shem, Uh, related, perhaps surprisingly, to us, to uh, Hades. But um, uh, the interest in uh, death and the future world and even the hatred of the brethren, all of this would have been laid upon uh, Shem's uh, shoulders. And I've developed this at greater length in preceding sermons. I just wanted to give a a sample and remind of this this fundamental mythology that spread uh, throughout all of the world because basically the one family of noah was taking it there but as we as we study the old myths and as we move forward in history we find that later histories were likewise spread and and corrupted in a in a similar manner, but not by a similar mechanism so um, how let me get let me give you an example in the figure of Bacchus or uh, Dionysus in the in the clear relationship to the figure of Moses but of course, by the time Moses has come come along um, we're about a thousand years away from the flood and the descendants of Noah are already spread. So how is it that such a very large proportion of the world ends up with um, a derivative mythology from Moses in the person of Dionysus or, or Bacchus? Let me just take a brief walk through through Moses' career and Dionysus and set them side by side. Interestingly enough, in an Orphic hymn, Dionysus is actually called Missus. Um, the only difference is a is a slight change in the in the first vowel. Uh, Dionysus was born in Egypt, as was Moses. Famously, he was beautiful of form, and it is said uh, both in the Old and the New Testament that um, there was something special in the appearance of of Moses. Like Moses, Dionysus was shut up in an ark and placed on the waters. He is sometimes called two-mothered Dionysus. Right, you might think of um, the fact that Moses had his uh, Hebrew mom, his biological mother, and his adoptive mother, daughter of Pharaoh. Uh, Dionysus is famous for his flights, which uh, not unusually involve the Red Sea. He was he was educated at Mount Nisa in Arabia. Interestingly enough, um, uh, the name Dionysus, uh, quite woodenly translated, would be like the God of Nisa, like Mount Mount Nisa. But you can hear the the relationship to Moses and the erection of the altar, Jehovah Nisi, right? Dionysus, God of Nisa, Jehovah Nisi. And some have also noticed that um, that Nisa and, and Sinai um, both can be formed with, with the simple transposition of, of two letters. Uh, so perhaps there's a relationship to uh, both. In the, in the mythology. Um, as I mentioned, he was famous for the passing of the Red Sea, for his wars and, and conquest, and um, being followed by an army of women, the Bakai. Um, you might think about the, the women who were um, singing God's praise at the Red Sea. And as they would go, Wherever they would go, uh, the land would flow with wine, milk, and honey. A very famous description of uh, Palestine, and also that Pan fought with uh, Dionysus fought on his side. Um, one of the tools that Pan would use was the was the instilling of fear, panic, which is where that where that term comes from. And you remember that the people surrounding Israel during their wilderness wandering, and then even after they entered Canaan um, would not attack them because they were afraid of them. Dionysus is remembered as a uh, a legislator. He's sometimes called two horned or depicted with horns, which quite literally is the description in, in Hebrew of the, rays of God's glory that were coming from uh, Moses' face after his experiences with, uh, with the Lord. The uh, Baque famously drew water from the rock. The serpent was sacred to Dionysus. You might think about the, the numbers narrative in which the brazen serpent was lifted on the on the pole. Uh, Dionysus is said to have had a dog for a companion, which is what Caleb means. And we could go on and on in this way just about Moses and Bacchus. But also um, uh, that Hercules also fought for um uh, fought for fought for Bacchus or or Dionysus, and that the the Hercules mythology bears a clear resemblance to the figure of, of Joshua. I wish we could. I wish we could do all of the details because I do think that the convincing power of this is in the details. But we find a very similar sort of thing. We find uh, linguistic confusion, and we find uh, substantial perversion. Both. Uh, but how is it that this word of concerning Moses spread the way that it did? And I think that um, Canaan, as we come to him in the in the genealogy, and in particular his offspring, the Phoenicians, his firstborn was Sidon, so Tyre and Sidon are. You know frequently thought of as the great cities of of uh, Phoenicia and of course they were famous for their uh, for their abilities in ship building and navigation, famous for trade. So now we need to draw we need to draw Canaan into uh, the mythology. So remember Canaan is a descendant of Ham. Who is the Jupiter, or, or Zeus figure, and when we when we meet Canaan's person in Genesis chapter nine, we find a, a curse being laid upon him, that he is being made a servant. Uh, what we find as as we study what is said and known about Canaan. And then what we know about the figure of Mercury is that the is that the descriptions are uh, very much the same. Kena'an, the Hebrew pronunciation, um, uh, can, uh, means merchant. And interestingly enough, in um, the ancient Chaldean, mahar means to sell, like to to trade merchandise to sell, and so on, and you can hear the the root of mercury in that. And of course, um, probably the, the most famous descendants of the of the Canaanites in world his- history would be the Phoenicians. And Zidon, the fountainhead of that is his is his firstborn. So he is no second class uh, Canaanite. He is he is firstborn. Interestingly enough, when you read uh, Western authors, and by that I mean traveling from the Middle East westward, uh, and especially in Europe, um, the names of Canaanites, Phoenicians, and Syrians are all used uh, interchangeably. That's a, that's a, a fact that we need to recognize and have care in our, in our reading, especially among the, the most ancient uh, Greek historians. But this is a phenomenon that we, we find in the Bible itself. Some of you will have noticed that in Matthew 15, a, um, a certain Canaanite woman is mentioned as approaching Jesus. And in uh, Mark chapter 7, she, she is called a Syrophoenician. And those terms are used interchangeably. and You see all three of the people groups, Canaanites, Phoenicians, and Syrians, all, all used pretty much um, interchangeably or, or simply not distinguished by, by Western authors. And, of course, Phoenicians are a, a subset of, of uh, Canaanite. I did find some, some very interesting detail work in Samuel Bocart he thinks that the name of uh, Phoenician, so in um, in Greek uh, pronunciation would be something like Phoenix or Phoenicia, the sons of Anak, uh, the giants. Now they're farther s- south than what we would a- what we would assume normally for Phoenicians. But in Hebrew, they would it would be pronounced v'nei-anak. So you'd hear v'nei-anak. You can hear uh, the consonantal pattern uh, being very much uh, repeated. The idea that perhaps, although not descendants of Sidon, when Joshua came in and... Um, the people under the, Sanic, the Sons of Anak fled, uh, perhaps they fled um, to that northwestern region to escape from, uh, and so uh, intermingled with the offspring of um, Zidon, as it were, and perhaps being uh, a great people group, that that name came to lie upon the, um, the Zidonians and the Tyrians. Interestingly enough, uh, Mercury it was uh, the god of trade. We know that the Phoenicians were heavily involved in this. Also the god of trickery and thievery. You might think about unjust business dealings. Think about their ability to move with swiftness because of their uh, uh, abilities in navigation. And the, the painting of wings upon the feet. There is the, um, the serving of the other gods. So remember, it was said that, that Canaan would be made a servant of servants to the, to the others. And one of his principal functions would be the servile carrying of messages, the one to another. And I, I do think that that's a, that's a very important point in what, um, what the Phoenicians end up doing. And, uh, Mercury was also the, the god of eloquence. And what we'll find is that some of the ancient historians say that the, that the Phoenicians carried letters, literature, and learning to the rest of the world. All right. So, so there's the, the relationship in the, in the mythology. Let's come back to the, the history and just consider um, the waves of exposure to the truth that the the Canaanites enjoyed. So of course like all human beings Canaanites would have God's witness to himself in nature as already mentioned they would have the Noahic tradition so um, you know, they would get their fundamental stories, as it were, and they develop their their mythology uh, from that. We've got the twisting of, of language to some degree, but also um, uh, not wanting to worship the true God. and so uh, a motivation to pervert the stories to make gods like after their own uh, image. But they have the Noah tradition, and it is embraced and preserved in its purity, at least by some. We've, we find the figure of Melchizedek in the time of Abraham. So now we're about 500 years removed from uh, the flood. But Melchizedek is a king and a priest of the Most High God. So he's, he's holding on to the true God. But as a king, he has subjects, and as a priest, he has followers. So all the implication of all of this is that he's not alone in this, in this embrace. So at least some remnants of the truth are being preserved in impurity down to the time of Abraham. How widespread it was or wasn't at that time is hard to say. But then... Abraham is reintroduced at that same time with the true religion. And the testimony of the um, Canaanites themselves was that he was a great prince among them. Uh, Josephus talks about him as um, being a teacher and that he would, um, in addition to the true religion, teach things like astronomy and, and so on. And this, this might have additional power in the sense that even if they don't, even if they don't want it, the patriarchal tradition, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their beliefs and what they're teaching would, would fully resonate with the Noaic tradition, right? So even if they're not wanting to acknowledge it, it would, it would nevertheless have a, have a resonance with them. I think we've all had, had the, had the experience when we're not we're not wanting to acknowledge a truth, but it's brought to us with some some power. It resonates with things that we already know. So we we may or may not be willing to admit it at the time, but there's that powerful resonance, and it would certainly be be so here. Now, fast forward another another five hundred years. We know that the decline among the Canaanites has been uh, precipitous. But when uh, Israel is coming up out of Egypt back toward Canaan, we we do know from scripture that they received reports concerning um, the Exodus miracles and the happenings in the desert. Turn with me in your Bibles to Joshua chapter two, Joshua chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. And she, as Rahab, said unto the men, I know that the Lord hath given you the land, and that your terror is fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what ye did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side of Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom ye utterly destroyed. And as soon as we had heard these things, our hearts did melt. Neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and in the earth beneath. Uh, although the Canaanites, by the time of the conquest, had descended into very dark, heathenish darkness. I wonder if, if some of the resonance still remains. It seems to have resonated with uh, Rahab. Interestingly enough, she um, talks about herself in company. We know that her family is saved. Is she only talking about the family? uh is she talking about Canaanites more broadly perhaps not in Jericho but in other like these reports have been have been heard and we and we know right so from noah down to melchizedek and abraham and now down to this there is some uh, yet some ability from those ancient testimonies to to recognize what what is true so this would, be, this would be Canaanite access to, to truth and to uh, the true religion, um, perhaps augmented when the, when the Israelites go into Canaan and then don't utterly destroy them, but there's some abiding and dwelling with them. Those Canaanites would have even greater advantage for, for learning the truth. But we also know that there was a great Canaanite displacement. And we also know that um, they had the ability to flee through the uh, Phoenician naval fleet. And some things also that we know, I do think just in general, that we can say uh, the Phoenicians exercised powerful influence throughout the mediterranean and even to the west african coast and um, out into the atlantic and and northward up to um, up to britain but just to give you um, three tactical snapshots uh, the phoenician colony of carthage and it's planting by Uh, Phoenicia is is well known, and so I don't really need to defend it at any sort of length here, but it's one of the reasons why the Roman wars with Carthage are are called cunic. You can still hear uh, the language of Phoenician uh, in that, but that they um, spoke the Phoenician tongue, at least initially, and so on. Uh, These are things that are well known to history. Perhaps for our purposes, the connection with, with uh, Greece is, the, uh, is, is very important. Now here, interestingly enough, you have the euhemerism itself. So hopefully I've made something of a connection between the East and what was known about Moses through firsthand experience and the Dionysus figure as embraced by, by the uh, Greeks. But interestingly enough, you don't only have the euhemerism, but the actual historical testimony of the Greeks that they received their letters, their literature, and their learning from the East. And there's a particular figure that they point to, one Cadmus, that brought letters, literature, and learning. Interestingly enough, um, Kadem in Hebrew means East, the Easterner. Uh, that's what his name means, and they say he came, he came from the east. I wonder if, in the in the mythology of Cadmus, if you don't um, have a relic of the, Phine- or the uh, Canaanite tribe of the Cadmonites mentioned in in Genesis fifteen. The reason I say that you you can still hear they're called Easterners. Interestingly enough, um, they're in the very northeastern reaches of Canaan, so almost immediately due east of the Phoenicians, and they settled around Mount Hermon. Now, in the Greek mythology, so at, settled at Mount Hermon, as it were, attached to it, Cadmus' wife is called Harmonia. And then, interestingly enough, and it might seem to defy explanation uh cadmus and harmonia are said in the myth to be changed into snakes interestingly enough the the cadmonites are also called maybe called later maybe at the same time i'm not i'm not altogether clear but hivites the hebrew root of which means uh snakes so it appears that um, we've got not not just the euhemerism itself but a but express historical testimony from the Greeks themselves that uh, they, they received their learning concerning these things from, uh, from the East. And then finally, one other, um, the Phoenician settlements of, of Spain, Phoenician words that have been put on places and so on. This also is pretty well known, but also the spread of Phoenician religion there we do know that Hercules was worshipped in Spain, but again, the Greek authors say expressly that he was not worshipped after the the Greek manner but after the Phoenician manner and with Phoenician rites so I wonder, and again, some of this is the presentation of a of a model um, you know um we don't we don't have enough historical facts and and uh, details to to connect uh, all of the dots, but um, we might be able to form up a model that that certainly is fully consistent with all of the data points so let's just consider um, the movement from um, the mythology that was derived from Noah down to the mythology that's derived from the person of Moses through its several stages in the, in the, um, character of Bacchus or Dionysus. It does appear that, that, um, initially he might have simply been called Noachus. He, he might very well be, uh, a Noah figure divinized uh, now noah as the as the great father in those early uh, ages after the flood would have had the would have had the primacy until there had been enough multiplication for uh, individual nations to settle but if there were ever disputes, of course, there would be a certain sort of lordship in Noah for handling disputes among the the families and um and also, of course, Noah's relationship to wine and the invention of wine would be important. But as I taught you about Bacchus before, I associated him primarily with, with Nimrod. And I, I really do think that much of the early elaboration was in the person of Nimrod. Perhaps the slide from Noachis to Bacchus, son of Cush. As Nimrod was. And Bacchus is normally portrayed as being um, a grandson of uh, Jupiter. Um, Nimrod was a, uh, as a Kushite, dwelt in Arabia, thus the association with Mount Nyssa. The Greeks frequently call him Zagreus, they called him a mighty hunter. His name, Nimrod sounds a lot like Nimra, which is a tiger in the Chaldean, and um, he's frequently portrayed as having a chariot drawn with tigers and uh, mantle of tiger uh, skin. He's also associated with wine, in as much as Babylon was famous for its grapevines and the production of the very best wines. You got that. Could be that um, this. Um, this version, if you will, of Bacchus was attached to the earlier one where the amazing things that were happening through through Nimrod were gathered into the preceding figure because of these contact points. Similarity of name, fame for, uh, grapevines, and also Nimrod was Famous for his expeditions into the east, as was Dionysus. So you got conquest and lordship, right? And then you um, you can see why, as um, the wonderful events surrounding Moses are told, and people already taken with this idolatry, why they would why they would weld the mosaic uh, additions onto this particular uh, figure. Um, association with, uh, Arabia, Nissa. there is a certain sort of, uh, lordship conquest into the east and perhaps one of the strangest associations Bacchus is frequently associated with reveling and, and wine drunkenness, um, You wouldn't want to associate those things with Moses, but Moses did give to the Israelites a system of uh, joyous feasts. And so it it does appear that in this way, um, the truth was being brought again, at least in some in some shards to um, the ever declining scattered sons of. Of Noah and so I wanted to take away from this a a doctrine and then a use my doctrine is that God has not left himself without witness he has left us a witness in nature uh, acts 1417 nevertheless he left not himself without witness And that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Right. So Psalm 19, Lord uh, bears testimony to himself in uh, the scripture, but he also does it in, in history. And the and the portrait that begins to emerge is that he does it over and over and over again. But you, you begin to learn also something about the, the heart of man. With every sending, they will turn it to idolatry apart from uh, special grace. So God will reveal his glory in the sun, but they will worship the sun as divine. He will show um, his mighty works of judgment and grace in the flood and in Noah and his his family, and they will pervert those things to uh, idolatry. He will show his wonderful works again in a much broader revelation in the mosaic revelation, and they will uh, uh, they will abuse that to idolatry. And at the end of the day, it's not that they don't want to be religious; they don't want the holy God of heaven. So they fashion for themselves deities that will be at peace with them in their sins. So um, you might think about Dionysus, Moses and his preaching and teaching about God and his holiness would make them very uncomfortable, but a, a God who encourages them in their revelry and their wine, well, that's much more in keeping with, with fallen flesh and with With this sending and sending again of witnesses to the truth. uh, Responsibility is compounded. Um, Let me read to you a a text from Jeremiah. It has some expressions in it that are repeated throughout uh, Jeremiah. And now, because ye have done all these works, saith the Lord. And I spake unto you, rising up early and speaking, but ye heard not. And I called you, but ye answered not. Therefore will I do unto this house which is called by my name, wherein ye trust, and unto the place which I gave to you and to your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh. Jeremiah 7, verses 13 and 14. This language of God sending, speaking and sending early and late. is repeated a handful of times throughout the book of, uh, of Jeremiah and their, their ever increasing responsibility is, is highlighted. And we might say if, um, if the uh, heathen have received enough through from nature and history to be left without excuse, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation. So let us um, let us use the truth that has been given to us well, and believe to the saving of our souls. And now, finally, just a word about the uh, apologetic value, where I started all of this. Um, you know, along my my christian journey i have heard the challenge from several different quarters Uh, all of those old religions you know had a flood narrative Uh, sometimes it'll be said some of them have a trinity all of them are messianic Um, and the idea being christianity is just one myth among many and probably stole its doctrines from from these others but one of the things that euhemerism does is it gives us the ability to say well of course they did at the end of the day god is one his history is one and it is delivered in the bible Uh, religion has been messianic from the first fall of man in genesis chapter 3 Of course. The declining religions of the world have held and carried that important central nugget but in the holding and carrying of it they've not believed to the saving of their soul nor endeavored to uh, recover the truth of it but rather it just stands as a witness and a monument against their sins and against the sins of their fathers so if the bible history is true and it is, and the biblical religion is true, and it is, then the religious situation in the world is exactly what you would expect to find, given man's fallen nature. But interestingly enough, the linguistic evidence and the express testimony of history is that the scripture, the Bible, is the original.